Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Welcome to Real Time Real Talk, a Dexcom podcast dedicated to pharmacists and other healthcare professionals on the front lines, helping people thrive who live with diabetes. So me being able to get an alert that it's predicting my glucose will be less than 55 in the next 20 minutes and to eat some glucose so I don't have to get as low as I could have gone if I didn't get that alert. Or even sometimes I can prevent going low because I'm able to get some glucose soon enough in my body and just go on with my day and not interrupt playing football or trying to catch baseballs with my boys. So those are just a few of the things that I love. Dexcom is the leading developer of real-time continuous glucose monitoring, also known as RT-CGM and other digital technologies to better manage diabetes. Real-time CGM provides critical glycemic metrics for physicians, pharmacists, and diabetes specialists to act upon to help their patients live with as much freedom as possible. Dexcom empowers people to take control of diabetes through innovative, continuous glucose monitoring. Real Time Real Talk is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. For more information on all Dexcom's technologies, products, and services, please visit Dexcom.com. That's D-E-X-C-O-M.com. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. This is The Pain Pod. You want to see pain? Look at these. Welcome to The Pain Pod, the podcast for all things pain management, hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important, focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city like Mountain Man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli. All right, welcome back, everyone, to the pain pod, as we say... Come one, come all to the pain pod. And as uh, as many a times, but especially today, I am delighted to welcome everyone back in our listening audience to the pain pod. Because, you know, uh, these days in 2022, there there's many things going on in the pain management, substance use disorder, addiction realm. And one of those, of course, is the CDC, uh, Chronic Pain Opioid Guideline Revision from back in 2016 to now in 2022. So we've got with us a pharmacist that is heavily involved in uh, leading as well uh, within the overall CDC effort. So I got a feeling that a lot of you want to start 
start listening to this gentleman and uh, perhaps a little bit less of the pain guy here. So, um, Dr. Christopher Jones, I just want to welcome you to the pain pod. And, uh, you know, it's absolute pleasure to have uh, anyone from the CDC, but especially a pharmacist, especially someone who, uh, if you check out the, the drafted and the eventual published uh, guidelines, folks, his, his name's right there at the top. So, um, but uh, Chris, what, what's your story? What, what, what is, uh, you know, your career, your life, your whatever, what, what's your succinct uh, story? <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on um, to talk about the guideline. And uh, certainly, um, you know, my career as a pharmacist has been um, on a trajectory that I would not have thought about when I was leaving pharmacy school. But I am a pharmacist, also have advanced training in public health um, and have been working in the substance use and mental health space for many years, but have also worked as a clinical pharmacist in the private sector. Um, and for the last 13 or so years have been working within the federal government. Uh, I have done multiple tours at CDC. I've also worked um, at FDA, both in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research and in the Office of the Commissioner. I set up the National Mental Health and Substance Use Policy Lab at SAMHSA and also worked in the Secretary's Policy Office at HHS. So have seen uh, federal policymaking from a variety of different perspectives, but a common thread in that work has really been around substance use and mental health. Sounds wonderful there. You know, in pharmacy, we have a lot of three letter uh, words out there that we are fluent with, of course, and good golly, your career alone has had a lot of that too. And uh, do, doing a lot out there is, a, you know, the face of uh, pharmacy within public health and, uh, you know, all across uh, government and in our country overall. So couldn't thank you enough. Uh, I know I always think back to uh, times even in our school of pharmacy and, and other ones as well when when student pharmacists see um, the wonderful uniformed folks coming in, whether it's to give talks or whatever, it's it's automatic respect and and just amazingness. So really uh, happy to have you here today again. Um, I, I get it just to kind of get our convo going here. One of the things I always ask uh, every, anybody on the pain pod, uh, one or two questions, but one of the first ones there is just, how do you define pain? That's an excellent question. I'm, this may be somewhat of a boring or maybe textbook type answer, but I think for me, I see it as both physical and emotional discomfort as a result of injury, trauma, or illness. Uh, certainly, you know, pain can be both acute uh, as well as chronic. And, you know, my experience both as a pharmacist, but also um, as a caregiver uh, for other people in my life is that you really can see pain affecting every aspect of someone's life. And I think that combination of physical and emotional and just the pervasiveness that it can have for individuals and in all that they do and, and how they interact with the world I think it's uh, are really important components of how I define pain. Well, I didn't hear you use any references there. So technically it's not textbook, but it is comprehensive. Uh, you know, knowing the, the whole human being, not just the physical side and sometimes not even the physical side, but the emotional, the psychological side, it's, it's huge. Um, those are some of the things that are overlapping. You know, if we were to do a Venn diagram of what people talk about when asked that it, it's you're spot on there in the big picture. So wonderful to hear. All right. Now, there's there's been a lot going on, you know, decades and we're not talking the last decade or two, but decades going back almost a century, if not more. 
there's a lot going on when it comes to clinical pharmacy or just clinical healthcare, patient care overall uh, in the space of pain management, especially when you bring up the word of opioid, whether, uh, you know, the media gets it right or wrong with opiate versus opioid, though that's for previous episodes here of the pain pod. But, you know, there, there's something that comes out of this, this uh, gentleman's mouth often is the difference between criminal and clinical. And we got to remember that a lot of, you know, the guidelines that are out there are really going along those lines of clinical. It's really the attempt to try and help us with our patient care. Uh, it, you know, the, the vast majority, if not darn near all of healthcare professionals, that's you listening, folks, um, are that clinical side with a, you know, a couple bad apples. Every profession's got them. I'm not going to name other professions, but certainly well outside of healthcare, by all means. Uh, There is that stark reality, though, that there's the few responsible for so very many prescription opioids just being dumped into society in in years past, hopefully not going into the future. Uh, But what would you say, uh, Chris, just in the the realm of how bad was it maybe in the 1990s, early 2000s, 2010s, you know, in the, the realm of when the opioid crisis really got into many headlines? You know, we're talking prescriptions, doses, MMEs, morphine, milligram equivalents, all that kind of stuff. What what was the picture not that far back in the day, really? Yeah, I, this has certainly been an area where I have been active in research over the years and trying to understand um, increases in, in prescribing of opioids and prescribing patterns. Um, you know, I think that you start to see some changes even in the 1980s, certainly by the early 90s to mid 90s of, um, you know, a, an increased focus on um, ensuring that individuals who have pain are receiving care and pain management. And oftentimes, because I don't think as a, as a uh, you know, society or medical professionals, the health professionals, schools, we were well-trained in really comprehensive pain management and what's the evidence for different modalities. And I don't think the science was where it needed to be that, you know, turning to prescribing was a, a natural reflex. And so, you know, opioids were abundantly available and there were some early studies that suggested that for people who had, you know, true pain, that the risks for addiction and overdose um, would be low. And, you know, that led to increases in prescribing of opioids that uh, started to escalate. And I think it's difficult to really look at the whole picture consistently through a single data source. Um, But when you look at studies that were emerging, data like IQVIA, which you could track back to different points in times in the 1990s, um, DEA ARCOS data, you do see that there was a substantial rise in not only the number of prescriptions for opioids that were being prescribed, but the volume, the duration, um, often calculated into morphine milligram equivalents over that time period from the mid to late 90s through really about 2012. Um, One study that we did uh, that came out back in 2011 looking at MMEs found a fourfold increase in MMEs between 1999 and 2010. Uh, We did a paper when I was at FDA using IQVIA data, which found about 80 million people received an opioid prescription in um, any given year and about 250 million prescriptions at the peak 
in 2012. But really, since that time, opioid prescribing has declined significantly. And it's declined whether you look at it in numbers of prescriptions, morphine milligram equivalents, or number of unique patients. But I want to go back to a point that you made early on, is that another area of research that I have been interested in, and certainly when prescription opioids were a primary contributor to overdose deaths, was really understanding the distribution and what role do a small number of clinicians versus the whole universe of clinicians contribute to prescribing? And we published a number of papers and looked at claims data, distribution data, um, other IQVIA data sets to try to really understand, is this sort of a universal thing that's going on or is it more concentrated? And, and some of that work really did show that a, a relatively small percentage of clinicians were prescribing the majority of opioids and that many clinicians may prescribe just a few times or to a few patients, um, but are not prescribing that often. And we certainly know during that period of, you know, 2008, 9, 10, that there were extreme outliers. Like if you think about pain clinics in Florida that were indiscriminately prescribing large volumes of opioids and their goal was really not around improving pain care, uh, but it was a business model to essentially uh, get large volumes of opioids out the door for cash payment. And that was driving a lot of the morbidity and mortality that we were seeing. Um, so, you know, that has shifted over time. States have implemented laws that have tried to focus on those outlier pain clinics. And we've seen overall prescribing um, decline. Uh, but I still think there is ample room for improvement in pain care overall. Millions of Americans are still suffering uh, from both acute and chronic pain, and opioids have a role to play. And I think, you know, with our guideline, which I know we'll talk about shortly, with the update, really the idea is to advance pain care and to strike that balance that opioids have a role to play both in acute and chronic pain. But there are other modalities as well that have evidence that can bring benefit to patients and that as a clinical community, we really have to strike that balance of enabling flexible individualized patient care. And that's really the intent of the guideline as a clinical tool is to help facilitate that. It's so much more impactful when you say it, <laughs> you know, just talking about the, uh, I think I used the word, the bad apples earlier, but, um, and that's, you know, somewhat to be expected along the way. And, and we, we know that I, I think one of the biggest kidney punches to healthcare professionals, especially prescribers and dispensers is, is this mentality that, Oh, it's everybody. And, Oh, we all got to watch our, watch our six. I think that's what they call it these days. You know, watch your back. Um, get it, get a state trooper or two in our family taught us that. So, but anyways, it, it's the idea that it's, you know, it, it's not everybody and the vast majority of healthcare professionals are looking to help people and, and you know, do oftentimes need that extra guidance too. So, you know, a journey of thousands of miles begins with one single step. We've heard the ancient proverb, right? Um, you know, perhaps the, uh, the first step or first couple steps were, you know, initial guidelines back in the day, um, not just CDC, but state ones along the way and other uh, entities, organizations, you know, I, I've in the past, I've usually said if the day ends in Y, there's probably a pain management guideline in the works, right? That's still uh, going on today, I believe. So, uh, but, you know, in a good way, we want to improve patient care overall. So 
Uh, now, it, you meant, I guess we both really mentioned the, the whole, uh, you know, this 2022 CDC uh, revision to the guidelines from, you know, about six years ago or so in March of 2016. So, I, you know, first and foremost, Chris, I just want to thank you for representing us PharmDs, our pharmacists everywhere as, as a primary author here. Uh, any in addition to authors, obviously there was the work group there. There's, you know, I'm sure consultants along the way, and you're going to know this stuff way better than this guy. That's for sure. But uh, you know, it, it takes a village, but I've had a lot of colleagues and friends uh, always asking like, Hey, how come there's not more pharmacists involved? What can you tell us there? Yeah. I, I think that, you know, when we, convened under our Board of Scientific Counselors, which is the Injury Center's Advisory Committee, uh, when we asked them to endorse uh, the formation of an opioid work group, um, that inherently, that process really formed around a work group that consists of about 12 to 25 members. Um, and we solicited um, public uh, nominations for people who might be interested in participating in that opioid work group, which would be a primary resource for providing very in-depth feedback on an, an initial draft of the guideline that would then be sort of reported up through our advisory committee uh, with recommendations back to CDC. And, you know, through that process, we were trying to strike a balance of having diverse perspectives, experiences, clinical backgrounds, as well as patients uh, who are living with pain. And we wanted a wide representation of clinical specialists that uh, would be engaging with patients who are living with acute or chronic pain. So we wanted primary care clinicians, dentists, surgeons, addiction medicine and anesthesiology, emergency medicine, nurses, PAs, uh, as well as pharmacists. And we also wanted diversity in respect to race, ethnicity, geographic area, where do they practice, um, you know, both uh, males and females. Um, and we ultimately got 255 applications uh, for what, again, was a very uh, limited number of people and so we ultimately determined that the pharmacy perspective, no doubt, was critical um, and that we went with a pharmacist from American Pharmacists Association, uh, really with a perspective that they could uh, try to bring multiple pharmacy perspectives um, to the table. But really, if you look at the number of people who are able to be on that work group, it's almost like everybody got one person essentially to represent their organization because we did want to have a wide net. Um, uh, you know, and I also think um, that's also why we focused on a 60-day public comment period, because we recognized that we couldn't have all the voices that we wanted in the opioid work group. Um, and I specifically reached out to the pharmacy organizations. I did a podcast for ASHB, uh, certainly reached out to my pharmacy contacts, because I, I truly believe, not only because I'm biased because I'm a pharmacist, but I really believe that pharmacists there is a long history of pharmacists bringing guidelines to life and understanding how this can operate in clinical practice. 
um, whether that be pharmacists who are working in hospital settings or clinical settings, pharmacy benefit managers, or working in you know, community-based pharmacy settings, that we have a long history of like taking what are you know, uh, long convoluted scientific documents, guidelines for hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, and distilling them down and helping both patients and providers navigate, how do we do this? How do we achieve what we want to achieve with the guidelines? And I felt, you know, while we couldn't have more pharmacists on the specific opioid work group, the public comment period was that opportunity to get those perspectives, that lived practice experience. Um, and that comment period closed earlier this week. We got over 5,000 comments. I know some of the pharmacy organizations have provided feedback. So I'm looking forward to digging through those comments and really understanding from the pharmacy or pharmacist perspective, how we can further uh, refine the draft that we put out for public comment to ensure that those perspectives are front and center. And the last thing I'll say on this is that the existence of a guideline doesn't change behavior. It's what do we do when there's a final guideline that's released and we think about implementation. And I think pharmacists and pharmacy organizations will be critical partners for that work. Amen. And us pharmacists just making guidelines, you know, to, it, it's like taking the PowerPoint of the patient, uh, we say in education all the time. So, I, you know, I, I um, hear with the pain pod and quite frankly, hopefully every time I get a microphone myself, uh, I like to be unbiased and, you know, look at all of the sides. And I get to check myself even on my, perhaps my own thoughts here on the, you know, how many uh, folks listening actually, you know, work in, let's say a pain clinic or any type of clinic and, you know, what's the ratio of pharmacists to other as well. Um, it, it's, you know, we don't even have to look much further than a community pharmacy. How many pharmacists are, you know, behind the counter, hopefully going outside the counter too. It's, it's tricky. Uh, no matter who you talk to, I really appreciate your candor and your explanation. There is what I'm bottom line saying here, Chris, because it, it's, you know, no matter who you talk to, that's who's going to want more people at the table. For crying out loud, Hamilton would want it the same way. Place at the table. For those that have watched Hamilton um, you know, or been blessed to even be, see them in person, I guess. Um, but anyways, it, it, it's it's a big picture. It really does take a village. So thank you for your your, your ideas there along the way, too. All right, folks, uh, if you're listening right now and you're you're driving, uh, let's let's work on not hitting any poles. And if you're running, slow it down so you don't run into a tree here, because here's some meat and potatoes for us here as far as this question. But, I, you know, uh, what would you Chris, what would you say are the biggest changes or revisions um, in these 2022 guidelines compared to the 2016 CDC opioid guidelines? Yeah, thank you uh, for that question, because I do think this is such an important piece. Um, for pharmacists and others who are listening to really um, understand not only how has the text changed, but a little bit of the insight into how we got to where we are. And you know, since the release of the 2016 guideline, the science on pain care has advanced, and we have taken a very intentional um, approach to really trying to listen and learn from people who are living with pain, as well as the providers who are navigating pain management every day. Um, and I think it's important also that we recognize and own that there are harms that have resulted from misapplication of the 2016 guideline, where components of the guideline were put into law, regulation, or policy that went well beyond um, what was the intention of uh, a clinical tool to help providers and patients. 
And as we've embarked on the 2022 update, there really have been two key principles that, you know, certainly as I have worked on the draft uh, and others in the writing team have really taken to heart. First is that patients living with pain deserve safe, effective, and informed pain care. And second, there's a lot of information out there, uh, and it's critical that providers who are very busy providing care have the latest information that they can use to inform their decision-making with patients around pain care. So the update really provides an opportunity for CDC to refine and improve the recommendations from 2016, not only based on the latest science, but also the lived experiences of patients and providers and the lessons learned um, from the 2016 guideline. So to the specifics of what has changed, I sort of put it into two buckets. The first is that there is an expanded scientific scope. And the second is that we put in new structural elements and language to try to mitigate the potential for misapplication and to ensure the proper use of the guideline as a clinical tool. Um, on the expanded scientific scope, uh, for those who are familiar with the 2016 guideline, it fo focused almost exclusively on chronic pain in the primary care setting. Um, recognizing that you know, pain doesn't exist in uh, a vacuum, um, we have expanded the scientific scope to include acute and subacute as well as chronic pain and to um, include a broader range of providers in outpatient settings um, and provide additional information on the use of opioids as well as other pain treatments for certain groups like older adults, pregnant people, uh, people with conditions that pose special risks like those with a history of substance use disorder. So we've expanded it um, both in the types of pain that are covered and provided additional information on, on different populations. Uh, we've also, um, you know, the scientific underpinning of the guideline is five systematic reviews that were conducted by our sister HHS agency, um, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, where we distilled down and synthesized those systematic reviews to provide more specific information on the use of non-opioid medications and non-medication treatments for different types of acute and chronic pain, in addition to the evidence for opioids for both acute and chronic pain. I think that's important because we've tried as, as much as the science allows us to provide as much specificity and detail about different types of pain treatment modalities and where they might, may benefit potential types of pain, recognizing that acute pain can show up in many ways, as well as chronic pain. Um, and I think the other piece about a focus on acute pain and having more information about acute pain is that since 2016, a number of papers have come out that have really, I think, shown a light on the fact that those early decisions between providers and patients about how acute pain will be managed can set patients up on a trajectory for transitioning into chronic pain. And that if we can, um, on the front end, do a better job of really understanding what's going on, what's contributing, 
you know, what's the acute injury or what, what are the other issues and what are the modalities that might best uh, resolve that situation, uh, we may have less need for uh, chronic pain treatment, um, or at least we're setting people up on a trajectory to be able to better manage um, subacute and chronic pain. So I think those are some of the big scientific expansions. Uh, we've also included um, greater focus and information around tapering and discontinuation, uh, recognizing that the 2016 guideline did not include much information on that. There wasn't a lot in the scientific literature to really guide that. We've gotten certainly more information since 2016, but also a key area uh, lesson learned around clinicians and patients needing guidance in how to approach tapers and certainly warning against and advising against abrupt tapers or discontinuation, recognizing the harms that have resulted since 2016 where clinicians um, undertook that. Um, from the structural perspective, again, Based on lessons learned uh, from 2016, misapplication of the guideline, we added several structural elements to the guideline, really with the aim of supporting individualized patient care that would facilitate shared decision-making between patients and providers. And to be very clear that this is a clinical practice guideline and is a clinical tool. It is not a law or policy or anything that should be used as an inflexible standard of care by providers, health systems, payers, or governmental agencies. Uh, something that may seem quite subtle is that we're calling it a clinical practice guideline. That was not the name of the guideline in 2016. And this is something that we received feedback from our opioid work group um, that, you know, just being very intentional that this is a clinical practice guideline, not a regulation, not a law. Uh, we also provided an opening box in the draft guideline that clearly sets out upfront what this is, what it is not, who it applies to, who it does not apply to, and how it should be used. And we reinforce that language throughout the document to be as clear as we possibly can that, again, this is a clinical tool. Um, we've also reframed how we talk about the recommendations and have included what we call implementation considerations um, after each recommendation, which are really um, guiding principles to inform implementation. They allow us to provide more specific um, considerations to clinicians and more nuance about the science for different recommendations. Um, and I think another big shift uh, that people have certainly noticed since we put the draft comment, a draft guideline out for public comment is that we revised our bolded recommendations uh, with a very intentional eye towards misapplication. Um, one of the areas coming out of 2016 is that our recommendations included hard thresholds like morphine milligram equivalents or days supply for treatment that just made it too easy to be taken out of context and applied as rigid standards. So in all of our bolded texts, we've removed limits and thresholds. Um, and we believe that that shift really does allow for um, and supports the idea and aim of individualized patient-centered care. And it allows us to, in the implementation considerations, talk a bit more about the nuance of what do we know about morphine milligram equivalents or day supply without putting a focus on them as 
hard edits or thresholds that have to be um, applied universally to all patients. Um, the last two things I'll say about the structural changes in the guideline, again, really based on experiences coming out of 2016, while the 2016 guideline did state that it was intended for patients who are initiating chronic pain management, it often got applied to legacy patients, patients who had been on opioids and in many cases were doing just fine on opioids. So we have clearly articulated in the recommendations which recommendations apply to patients who are being considered for initial treatment with prescription opioids and those that have already been receiving opioids as part of ongoing care. Again, I think a very important uh, shift in how we have structured the guideline. And then we have tried to be more explicit that the guideline does not cover and it's not intended for patients who are dealing with sickle cell disease-related pain, cancer pain, palliative care, or end-of-life care. Again, we say that up front, and then we reinforce that throughout the document. And we also refer clinicians who are treating patients um, with those conditions to guidelines that have now come out um, that provide specific recommendations, not CDC guidelines, but uh, society guidelines that provide recommendations for those different uh, disease states. Uh, again, those were not uh, really available prior to 2016. They've subsequently come out, and we want to make sure to highlight those. So clinicians who are trying to understand how do I navigate sickle cell uh, pain, whether it's acute or chronic or cancer pain or palliative care end of life, there are resources for them and that this CDC update is not intended for that patient population. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That that's um, now we, we just followed a lot there. So I, I'm gonna I can put some things together here, but um, you know the ever changing landscape of guidelines in general is is something in itself that's that's tricky for all clinicians and everyone to really keep up with. I know I was actually on someone else's podcast a couple uh, months ago, maybe even just weeks, and I was asked about uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy uh, guidelines and and any updates, and there was nothing. And like I kid you not, two weeks later, a new guy the new guideline came out I'm like good golly we should have timed that one better huh um so it's good to hear that there's those references out there of course too so all right so big picture um i know you mentioned the two buckets of these you know these revisions in the big picture here i might i might even say two or three uh, again, my own thoughts here, but, um, you know, the setting, that's a big thing is just stating that right off the bat. And then multiple times, you know, as you already articulated the whole going well beyond primary care, turns out there's a lot of am care out there just in general, there's a lot of acute chronic, uh, and certainly excluding any of the conditions you already mentioned, like, you know, palliative cancer, sickle cell, and so on. And providing those references that that's one big bucket. I, I certainly agree with there too. You know, the 2016 guidelines stated, I swear, if anybody read anything, it was not the first paragraph. It said it directly that this is, you know, just primary care back in 2016, not now, because now there's an expansion. And as you, as you mentioned, thankfully, um, that, that misapplication that you already are talked about, uh, boy, that, that was strong. I know you even hit yours truly, uh, our pain pod nation. I'm sure you, you've already heard it probably multiple times. Imagine me and my wife though. Um, but anyways, you probably heard it at my little COVID kidney stone journey multiple times of, you know, Friday the 13th at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, being in the, in the ER for three hours. And of course, no pain management and just as concerningly, no opioid risk screenings or anything like that. You know, the, the other, the risk reduction strategies as 
well. They often get lost in the shuffle with guidelines and, and the CDC guidelines and many other state guidelines and so on and so forth certainly include that stuff. So it, it's that's a big one there, the, the whole setting thing. That, that's so big. Um, you, you emphasized, I, uh, what I heard in your words, Chris, was underlining, bolding, and large font, not like a package insert, uh, of the avoidance of rapid opioid tapers, or the, you know those, uh, and then jumping into kind of the same bucket, but maybe a third one of the, you know, getting rid of the limits or even thresholds. I, I got to be real with you. I was actually a fan in a way of thresholds, as long as thresholds were respected as a threshold and not a limit. What does that all philosophically mean? Of course, you know, there's times when we want to review things. It's always that's patient care, just continually reviewing things. But limits, uh, oh boy, that puts us in those things of the extremes of society, well beyond pain management. Of everybody's all the way to one side or the other, and then nobody's chilling in the middle, providing you know, what every patient deserves along the way. So uh, the MME thing, so good golly, that, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, like them, love them, or hate them, they're out there. Uh, and, and maybe we'll dive in a little further with one or two thoughts on, on the MME guidance as well. But uh, the, the one thing I think everybody's got to remember is that there was a multitude of MME, morphine milligram equivalent uh, charts and factors and all that stuff out there. Um, and then all of a sudden, when the 2016 CDC opioid guidelines came out, then it was like, okay, this is this is the one that everybody's got to go with. Uh, but there's other ones out there too. Uh, it, it's just it's tough. Uh, I recently had a question. Um, I actually I've been asked this many a times, but um, it just hit home more. Somebody had asked, "Hey, how do you actually formulate an MME factor for for say a new medication?" Even and I was like. That takes a lot longer to describe. So I'm not going to put you on the spot with that one, Chris, but it's um, just to, you know, kind of kick him back to the, the guideline revision here as well. But uh, it, in the past, there was uh, some issues, even with uh, when the original 2016 CDC guidelines came out, the buprenorphine enemy factor was 10. And then magically, like nine months later, it became 30. It's only 300% off. Good golly. And now it's not even referenced because, you know, we want to avoid any stigma or anything that comes from that. Good intentions, but we are clinicians. We, we we tend to want the numbers even though we don't want them, right? But what I'm getting at here is that one of the things that protrudes in the, the revision here now, here and today, is, is that level of 50 MMEs per day. I've heard that from many of colleagues that they're extracting that when they're reading it. And it's like, okay, is that the intention of what should be extracted? And then what's the reality of that? I mean, I, you know, how often would a human really need more than 10 hydrocodone acetamine of 10 5 325s in a day i mean that that's there are times by the way let's not skip over that but what what thoughts do you have on that specific realm there yeah i mean i i i'll, I, I'll go back to a comment that you made just a few minutes ago which is that it is helpful for clinicians to have guideposts or prompts and that is a role where you know having something on mmes may be helpful to just say, how are things going? Um, and I think the, the while we have removed MMEs from bolded recommendations, and we are very clear to point out that anything that we say about MMEs is not intended as a hard limit. Um, we do include information around MMEs in the guideline. We try to appropriately caveat that, you know, they're there are different ways of, of people potentially calculating MMEs 
or how they've been used in studies for surveillance is different from how they might be used clinically in that, you know, at the end of the day, there is really the clinician working with the patient um, and looking at all the other circumstances and context uh, in order to make those clinical decisions around dosing. Um, certainly, the epidemiological data are clear that as the dose increases, there is an increased risk for opioid-related harms, and we certainly want to keep that front and center. But I think on 50 MMEs in particular, what was interesting, and I think what is new in this draft guideline, is that a lot of our text around the 50 MMEs per day um, is really framed around the findings from an analysis that we're looking at combined head-to-head -head studies, as well as a meta-regression of placebo-controlled trials that found an association between higher opioid dose and greater short-term effects on pain appeared to plateau around 50 MME per day. So historically, the focus on MMEs has really been about harm and overdose risk. And I think what we're trying to highlight here is that going above that for some patients may not actually result in better pain relief or improvement in outcome and certainly can increase risk for harm. So I think we're trying to, what we're trying to say is that this is a, a, an opportunity for the patient and the clinician, if you, if you are at that point, to say, how are things going? You know, am I able to do the things that I want to do? Am I achieving the goals uh, that we set out together as patient and clinician? Um, and, you know, if not, what's the likelihood that going higher would uh, help me achieve those goals? What else is going on with the patient that might increase their risk for harm or increase uh, their chances of success? And then making it, a, you know, a shared joint decision on moving forward. So I think it's important that there is some sort of guidepost uh, for clinicians when they're making those decisions. Um, and you know, I would hope that even at lower doses, you know, every time there's a conversation around increasing a dose or changing up a medication, we should always be having that conversation as clinicians with our patients. Are we achieving the goals that we set out? Are we experiencing any adverse effects? And then what's the best path forward together? Um, so I think the 50 MME helps um, provide some context, but again, in you know, given the lessons learned from 2016, we are very clear in the implementation considerations component to say that at the end of the day, our aim here is individualized patient-centered care and um, you know, reinforcing that the guideline is a clinical tool to support shared decision making and that the recommendations related to you know, starting doses or increases in doses or 50 MMEs are again, not intended for inflexible rigid, rigid standards or hard limits. They're really intended to help be that prompt for clinician patient decision making and, and you know, making further decisions about whether or not to increase the dose. I think it's also important to state, state that we do uh, italicize and underline in the same section where 50 MME is discussed that um, this is, again, it meant to be applied in the context of patients who are starting opioids or considering increases in opioid doses, 
not anything related to you know, tapers or reductions in doses. Nowhere do we say that individuals can't be on doses higher than 50 MME per day, um, or that individuals that are already on higher doses should arbitrarily be tapered down to 50 MME or lower. So just continue to be very explicit that that is not the intent. Even if it's removed from the Boulder recommendation, um, you know, where we discuss it in implementation considerations is again, it's a consideration. It is not a hard limit um, that, you know, patients are not able to go above or somehow would be have to be tapered down to. That, that is such an incredibly important thing. And I, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, underlining bolding and italicizing. Good golly. I think if we could get that on other things like billboards or something, um, maybe that's too far, but <laughs> just the, you know, preventing that, um, you know, that age old thing when it, there's that game, when you tell one person something and then like five people later, it's either the exact opposite of what you said or something that has nothing to do with what you said. Boy, does that hit home with guidelines, especially in, in this realm, of course, too. So hopefully, hopefully our clinicians out there, everybody listen, we, we got to do our part to keep the intent of what is typed up. It's so important. There's, you know, you, you just heard uh, Chris mentioning there, it, it, kind of paraphrasing that the differences there of opioid naive compared to opioid experienced or, you know, acute and chronic, and then, you know, grandfathering somebody in per se, but that doesn't mean, oh, wipe the hands and more we're done, it means, no, we're still providing patient care. We're reevaluating everything along the way. Is it actually working? Is more needed? Is less needed? And the flip side, the coin, it doesn't mean, oh, under 50 or whatever level that you don't have to or shouldn't do any of that either. It, it's just, it, you know, it's staying the course. It's helping people out along the way and, and having those, you know, everything else within uh, most pain management guidelines these days of the, what I always call the, the risk reduction strategies, the, the other things in the toolbox beyond the actual treatments of the just, you know, reducing risk for, for patients, for providers alike, everybody of, of just, you know, providing that upper level care there too. So um, I really appreciate you going into that MME guidance there, Chris, a, a little bit more. I, I, I think, uh, you know, that last two, three minutes there, that might be something somebody wants to listen to two or three times, quite frankly, <laughs> and hope it's not needed everywhere. But, you know, just the blatant idea that this is not universal. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, let's be real, folks. I, Paint Pod Nation, you're listening. Uh, you hear the number 50 MMEs. And you're thinking, yeah, and uh, I've observed in my career patients utilizing hundreds of MMEs per day. Perhaps you're in the other bucket of thousands per day, especially, you know, methadone, exponential, uh, MME factor, that whole gig. Um, there's times that happens and it's like, well, 50 is not even in the same ballpark. It's not on the same planet even. Um we got to keep that in mind along the way. And, and hopefully when, when um, you know, the, these guidelines are deployed, not even publication, but deployed, those things are remembered along the way too. Uh, so that that's, I really appreciate your thoughts here, Chris, and just kind of whittling it down of uh you know, perhaps maybe we're going over some of the tougher topics, uh, but um, that's what everybody wants to know about. Well, you know, what's the deal with the MMEs? What's the deal with the audiences? Um, are we, is there going to be a direct address to managed care organizations? I don't, I'm not going to say the other three letter word, right? Um, got good people working at some of those too, by the way. But anyways, the, the uh, insurance companies, the laws and regulators even. Oh my goodness. Uh, I know I could only, well, I could speak for other states, but I could speak for my state alone. Of the, now there's laws on the books of what, what limits are for somebody going to the ER or having a surgery or whatever. And it's like, have we gone too far decades ago or vice versa? 
It's tricky, uh, but uh, you know, again, guidelines are a guide in the end. Uh, but that that's really important there too. And I think the dissemination is really where it comes up here. Of you know, um, I, you know, are there any plans for any types of like new or dynamic, uh, hopefully even succinct messaging strategy for the twenty two guideline release? Uh, I throw my suggestion out there, have a one pager, not a white paper, just a one pager uh, highlighting these, quite frankly, what we talked about here today. Thank you. Uh, you know, 80% of folks, if not 98% of folks aren't going to read anything longer anyway. And by the way, nothing below will say uh, 24, 28 font, something like that. But uh, any of those things uh, in, in the plans for helping out with the dissemination there, Chris? Yeah. So, I mean, I recognize that the actual guideline itself in, in a Word document form is like 210 pages long. So yeah, we, we, <laughs> that's uh, painful. That's painful. <laughs> I had to read it and write it uh, multiple times. So yes, I understand the pain of really thinking through how do we distill down what's most critical and do it in a way that is um, accessible and relevant for different audiences, right? So, so there will be some clinicians who really want all the detail, and that's important, and we have the guideline for that. Um, but there are also components of the guideline that can be pulled out. Uh, that can be made into fact sheets, um, you know, different types of training that can be provided, electronic health record, clinical decision support. Um, so yes, we do have an ongoing plan and have already started working on ancillary materials that would accompany uh, release and support implementation of the guideline that can clearly say, you know, here's what's different um, in, you know, 2022 compared to 2020. 16. Here are fact sheets on, you know, non-opioid medications. Here are fact sheets on non-pharmacological treatments for pain and where we have evidence to say that they might benefit so that the guideline can, you really come to life, to life and be implemented in clinical practice and be digestible for people depending on what their needs are. So I think it's a great flag, a good suggestion. It is certainly on our list to do. And I would add, you know, in addition to those materials, we also plan to engage with a broad range of partners um, who are doing work in this space, including managed care and others, to let them know, here's the latest science, here's our recommendations, um, you know, here's how this guideline is intended to be used. I think that's, that's really important. Uh, because again, as a pharmacist, I have seen too many times in my career that simply creating a guideline does not change anything. It's how the guideline is implemented and uh, you know, the uptake in clinical practice and among patients and among policymakers. Yeah, it's uh, it's like the difference of a vaccine compared to vaccination. But that's for another day, and that's for uh, the other, the real Dr. Garofli. That's my wife, folks. She, she's the immunization side of life. But all right, so um, lots of different pharmacology within the guidelines, of course. So here's something I ask every pain podcast, Kirsten. Now, what's your favorite pain medication? I have to go with ibuprofen. I mean, and that's just based on my personal experience that it seems for... I just turned 42 uh, in fairly good health. I don't have any chronic conditions. I am a person in long-term recovery uh, from addiction, um, but you know, am am able to be active. Uh, but I think you know, there's some days where I wake up and I think, wow, I didn't realize that my hip uh, was hurting, or I must have slept wrong because I can't move my neck like I used could move it yesterday, or you know, low back pain, or uh, I ride my bike and I like flipped over the handlebars this past summer and scraped up my leg and 
you know, ibuprofen for me has been something that tends to uh, work well for the types of pain that I'm experiencing where I am right in my life. Uh, so for and, me, and certainly uh, access is there too. I mean, uh, you know, you get that down the dollar store even and, and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, I, I was once told upon turning uh, 40 back in the day myself of, uh, oh, it's all downhill after 40. And, you know, you laugh, you chuckle and uh, sounds like you may have been in, in a similar boat. It's like oh, 40 <laughs> hit and then a pandemic hit. And then, you know, you, you fell off your bike a few times there. I got a kidney stunt, you know, pain happens. It, it's... <laughs> Uh, these all parts of life, of course. So, all right. Uh, one, uh, one kind of last thing here too. You mentioned early on, uh, actually, uh, something about uh, meth, methamphetamine, and and it's something we've talked about actually, even in the pain pod, even though it's a little bit outside the realm of pain. But um, you know, there, there's the opioid crisis out there. Obviously, there's the war on drugs for for decades now. The just say no. Hopefully, we spell it correctly with K N O W. Um, but there's a lot going on with stimulants as well, too. Um, anything up the sleeves of the CDC? I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, by the way. But anything up the sleeves that you'd want to share of uh, as far as any ADHD stimulant guidelines or anything with stimulants in general in the, in the brewing? <laughs> uh, well, I, th I will say that our focus uh, around stimulants has really been more around illicit stimulants and the contribution that, you know, resurgent methamphetamine, to some extent cocaine, have had on increasing overdose deaths, often in combination with illicit opioids like illicitly made fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. So much of our work has been trying to support uh, local and state public health departments and their multi-sector collaboratives to really try to shift from what had largely been an opioid focus to one that is focused on you know, rising um, and when I say opioid in that context, I mean illicit opioids, I should be more clear. Uh, one, you know, overdose deaths driven by illicit opioids, now really driven by combined illicit opioids, stimulants, poly substance use. Uh, so I think what you'll see from us, not ADHD stimulant prescribing guidelines in the way that we've done for opioids, but more around thinking about public health strategies to address um, health harms related to illicit stimulant use. I mean, that's been an active area of my research over the last couple of years. We've published a number of papers documenting the rise in, in particular, methamphetamine uh, use, but also cocaine, its connection to the illicit opioid supply, rising injection use of both illicit opioids and methamphetamine um, so I think that's that's really where our focus is at the moment. Gotcha. And and thanks for those insights there too. And I, you know, just in kind of wrapping up here, uh, I really really want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's the most valuable resource we've all got. But uh, you get your hands full, of course, with all uh, endeavors in public health and the CDC and and so on and so forth. Uh, the the overall idea here, big picture. Um, I, I know, Chris, we're we're actually uh, well. When everyone's listening, we'll have both presented at the RX Summit 2022 uh, held in Atlanta. It's kind of the the coming back to Atlanta as far as that conference. Pain Pod, I'll actually have an, a kind of a summary episode for that conference overall as well. Uh, but I, I want, in just in closing, I wanted to highlight one of the things that um, that group did. They created a, it's really an amazing, I think it's like a one minute video, give or take a couple seconds. Uh, I posted it on my LinkedIn for those that would like to check it out. It's one of those, like if you're, you know, uh, if you're like myself, big baseball fan or sports, I guess, whatever, uh, you know, those motivational things or teams deploy at the beginning of seasons or whatever. That group, the RX Summit, they they made this amazing one minute video that just discussing uh, hope 
um, and the reality that over a million heartbeats have been lost to drug overdose in our country this century. I think they say that like the last 20 years, but basically this century. It's over one million too many, quite frankly. I think anyone and everyone can uh, easily agree on that. So, you know, so many ponder what the answer or answers are to this drug crisis. And, oh, that's just a circular conversation for a campfire, I think, uh, that many endeavor into. But, you know, it does take a village. And I just really want to thank you again for your time here today, Chris, and in addressing some of these questions that I fielded from numerous pharmacists and healthcare professionals overall uh, across our country uh, to really, uh, you know, openly discuss here what's going on with the, the 2022 CDC uh, opioid guideline revision. So thank you very much. I, I certainly hope that you uh, do, do well. Godspeed with the rest of the efforts with the CDC as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, hopefully we'll run into each other uh, next week in Atlanta. And Again, I uh, look forward to working with my fellow pharmacists and pharmacy organizations as we move towards finalization and implementation of the guideline later this year. Absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, I said this to, uh, to the Todd cast or Todd Yuri from the pharmacy podcast, uh, network, uh, one time with, yeah, we're pharmacists. We pharmacize, which is, is not limited to one scope or genre of patient care either. We pharmacize, we don't publicize. So we're, we're all going to be on the edge of our seats, uh, hoping for a good publicizing effort uh, and dissemination, of the information for these guidelines that are coming out. Uh, so I, I, you know, uh, I know that I speak for everybody that will be anticipating that along the way as well too so thank you again chris for your time and to the pain pod nation uh thank you uh for coming and showing up here today hopefully this is one of those where you you were uh how do we normally say you pay for the seat but you only use the edge you know the pay for anything here of course but anyways um hopefully this was an enjoyable conversation to get you some of those deets the details that you've been wondering about when it comes to the 2022 cdc guidelines so thank you again pain pod nation and have a great rest of your time if you'd like to join Mark on the pain pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.